that's why I'm passionate about magazines and print and, and part of what we do in that hopefully we can, well, as you say, New York Times will not let me get away with anything and I love that. But I believe in the, in the print form, there's a bit more gravity and I think also escapism. It's a different part of your brain that's being engaged. Today, Dirty Linen is heading to Australia's capital, Canberra, a town that I love to visit, although that won't be happening for a little while. We are checking in with Katerina Kroslikova. She is the publisher of Tea Australia, the New York Times style magazine, but she's also very much involved in her husband's restaurant, Italian and Sons, especially in lockdown. Katerina, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I look forward to having a chat with you. Well, I do as well because... Yeah, you're involved in a lot of my favourite arenas, so media and publishing, but also restaurants. Uh, Tell us about life in Canberra at the moment. What does a typical week, if there is such a thing, hold? Well, I actually normally am based in Sydney. Um, We moved up at the start of this year from Canberra because um, obviously the demands of the job with the New York Times required me to be a lot more on the ground and um, speaking with advertisers and stakeholders and partners. So, um, yeah, I've been in Sydney for a few months and then obviously with the current situation with um, uh, our mate COVID and um, we made the call very early on with my husband. We've got a three and a five-year-old um, that we would move back down to Canberra basically to keep them safe and to keep us safe. And um, so, yeah, I've only been here literally a few weeks, but it's been, um, yeah, well, it's been um, it's been busy. It's been um, basically calling up the same suppliers that we had last year for tamper-proof packaging and label oh. designs. And, um, yeah, it's um, trying to maintain my job and trying to help him with the restaurant, trying to keep the kids entertained. It's It's a lot. I mean, it does sound a lot. I think one of the things we've noticed through this whole period is how much multitasking needs to be done when you're trying to keep businesses and careers and families afloat during this this crazy time. Yeah. What, what do you do? Like, is it just a base? Is it just a need to need what needs to be done basis every day, or do you have a particular part of the week that you try to carve out for the restaurant? How do you do it? Um, okay, so daily, yeah, look, to be honest with you, it's being physically safe. Um, it's having everybody's mental health in check. It's having the kids trying to lead as normal day as possible. Um, but obviously underlying all of that is the fact that my husband has a restaurant that we need to keep afloat. And I have a business that is only five months old that I need to keep afloat. So, um, yeah, look, you just do the best you can every single day as the challenges come and they come <laughs> day in, day out. <laughs> and so tell me about your husband's restaurant, Italian and Sons. Where is it and how's the takeaway going? Well, he's got, um, he's got four restaurants actually at the moment. So the best known, I guess, is Italian and Sons and they kind of, they've got a hat. Um, I've had one for like 10 years, I think. And they're also, they're pretty good with their wine list. I think they've got the Gourmet Traveller wine list of the year for the state um, for a few years running. So I always like to joke that I'm, you know, the reason they've got that because I taste test all of the wine list, um, you know, in the name of sacrificing myself. You know, he's got the fine dining restaurant called Metalira. Uh, he's got a little wine bar called Baccaro and a whole in the wall kind of Roman panini takeaway place called Darazario. So between the four restaurants, they're all very different and trying to manage all four of them um, is a bit of a nightmare. So 
Um, the focus is on Italian and Sons, which is, um, like I said, the best known, and it's where we've got a lot of the groundwork already established from last year when um, the first lockdown happened here. So um, we did two things last year together. We um, really worked hard on the takeaway, but we also managed to get some of his greatest hits into the IGA, local IGA here. And the Canberra food scene, I have to say, um, is very political, is very factional. Um, and I suppose it has to be because it's Canberra. But um, it's very clicky and this person likes this person and this person doesn't like this person and this one's mates with this and this one's partner with this. It's just crazy to get my head around it all. But what we found um, very early on last year is when Pasquale decided to sell something like a tiramisu in the IGA, um, it was we definitely felt a bit of a kickback. Um bit of, um, I don't know whether it was professional jealousy. I don't know whether it was laughing behind his back. I don't know. There was a bit of negative from the industry. And I was a bit heartbroken about that because we worked really hard to make that happen. Like the amount of research that goes into tamper-proof packaging for it to be the right size, the right volume, the right safety. I had to do all the nutritional panels, chuck them all in into the Food Safety Authority. Like I had to do all the legal stuff, all the proper branding, which took forever all the labeling, all the distribution, the chill, the couriers, like it was a lot of work. And then I remember we were at Officeworks because I ran out of something, probably Blue Tech or something. We're at Officeworks and one of his restaurant mates um, kind of said something like, oh, yeah, I see you've sold your soul and you're in the supermarket now. And I just went, I'm sorry, you're meant to be a friend and you're saying this. because yeah, that's what people are saying. And I'm like, but you don't understand. We've kept everybody employed. Everybody has a job. Everybody is pumping. Everybody is busy. And last year, this year is obviously very different because this lockdown for us in Canberra and Sydney is like very challenging for mental health. So this year is just difficult. But last year, having that excitement about being able to actually try something new and pivot really quickly into something and being productive and being excited about doing something. And also the other thing that happened with the IGA is like – People's mums and grandmums and aunties and uncles and friends and relatives that weren't able to come into the restaurant because it was closed were able to go in and say, my daughter made this or my son made this. And it was actually a really nice thing for the chefs to be able to say to their friends and their family and say, look, I made that pasta. That pasta is made by hand. I did that. Or I made that pasta sauce. Or I did that tiramisu. Or I made that eggplant parmesan or whatever it was. Um, it was actually really nice for the restaurant to be able to feel a sense of pride and like you were actually contributing and people were still able to enjoy their tiramisu, whatever it was. But it was, yeah, I found that to be the most interesting thing from last year. I'm not quite sure whether it's still happening this year, but um, last year that was the thing that kind of took me a little bit by surprise. It's like, well, I think we should all just try and be a little bit kind to each other and, and, and appreciate the fact that someone is working hard to keep everybody employed and keep them paying their bills and their rent. And, you know, it was, yeah, that was really surprising for me last year. Mm, I mean, yeah, it is really surprising. Personally, I would love to be able to go to my IGA and get some high quality tiramisu. It is, it is a very important dish to me. If whenever I eat at a restaurant that has a tiramisu, it becomes a control dish for me when I'm reviewing restaurants. I think it's, it's great to have dishes that you can really benchmark. So I consider myself a connoisseur. You know, I don't know if you ever become an expert, but I'm definitely an appreciator of the art of tiramisu. And I don't mind where I find it if it's at the IGA, it sounds all G to me. I love that. We're 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 um we're, we're friends. Then we're on common ground. <laughs> 
definitely. Tiramisu diplomacy. Uh, yeah, go forth. Um, so, Katerina, let's talk about the publishing side of your life because, I mean, I love magazines. Some of my favourite writing gigs have been for the Glossies and I'm really so excited that, you know, publications such as the New York Times are still investing in print and investing in, you know, high quality magazines with high production values like Tea Australia. Can you tell us about the magazine? Yes, I can. Where do I start? Um, I was at the Financial Review for a long time, probably about 10 years. I was the um I was um, kind of leading the luxury and the lifestyle portfolio. So I was looking after weeklies and glossies and quarterlies and writing across the magazine. So I had a pretty good um, handle on the lifestyle and the um, luxury field. And then I had two little bubbers and I decided to start my own business, doing some custom publishing for some other um, clients. And I just sort of sent out one of those bulk emails to people to say sort of, thanks for everything, I'm going to go. Um, and within like three seconds, I got an email back from New York Times saying, oh, this is great. You're leaving. You're free to do this magazine for us now. Am I? Okay. And also, why couldn't we not have had this conversation five years earlier? But that's okay. Fine. Whatever. Um, and as the, as the story famously goes, I actually said no um, several times. <laughs> so it's all about timing, isn't it? I had stuff on the go. I actually didn't think that was the right place, right time, right circumstance, right environment for a magazine like this to come because it was, I felt at that time, probably four or five years ago, quite saturated. Um, and so he was kind of on the back burner. We were sort of talking, um, yes and no, back and forth. And last year was the turning point. Um, I was just devastated by what was happening in the magazine industry. And, and I thought, I, this cannot, I love this industry so much. I'm like, you, you can't see the floor of my house for mags. Love them. Like, I love the craft of them, the paper, the touch, the design, the special finish. Like, I love everything about them. And what was happening in the Australian media landscape was just, was just critical. Um, and I thought, if I have the opportunity and if I have the financial means to be able to, put this project together, wouldn't it be amazing if it was a positive catalyst for something to happen? And I remember talking to my financial planner about this and he was looking at the numbers and the licensing fees and the revenue share and all the complicated stuff that has to go back to New York Times. And he's like, um, are you aware of what's happening in media at the moment? And I'm like, yeah, I am. I am. And that's exactly what we're doing. We have to go against this avalanche of like destroyed dreams. It just, it was, it really affected me. I was writing a monthly column to Harper's Bazaar about luxury motoring because I'm a bit of a, bit of a hoon. And um, yeah, when Harper's closed, that was just, that was epic for me. That was so sad. It was just so sad. And there were magazines that didn't deserve to be closed and it all just happened in a big, um, big catastrophe. And so then we resumed our conversations with New York Times um, I'm editor-in-chief and publisher of the magazine. We put together a prototype in six weeks and literally off we went. I put together my vision for the magazine and I said, look, it's got to be distinctly Australian. It's got to have a sense of humour. It's got to have a strong sense of personality. It's got to encapsulate who we are, what we eat, what we do, where we go, how we behave, how we dress, how we think, how we don't take ourselves too seriously, but too seriously, but also what we respect and what we love. And I just gave him a whole vision of what I thought this mag should be in terms of its personality and vision and its um, its kind of journey. And um, here we are. And so literally a few days ago, we've just announced to the market that we are going to increase our print frequency. And again, 
this is such a cool thing to be able to do because most magazines do not do that. We started with quarterly, and next year we're going to go up to bi-monthly, which is amazing. I'm so, so excited. And you can definitely tell the um, the industry excitement. I've had so many positive messages, even from like my staff. Like I've got this incredible chief sub-editor who's just such a legend. He worked with me on Harper's and he's like, this magazine just like revitalized my career and I just love it. And everyone's super excited for six issues next year. And um People like, this is just the good news we all need. And that is, I have to say, the best part of the mag, the best part of doing what we've done because it was bloody crazy, Danny. <laughs> it was just a crazy thing to do. Um, and it could have just died in the ass. I don't even know if I'm allowed to swear, but it could have died in the ass. And we've worked so hard to make it happen and to actually have some good results and increase our print frequency. I'm super, super proud of that. Yeah, well, congratulations. It is such a great story. I mean, there's no shortage of people around there who'll tell you that print is dead. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, you know, of, of course we all live online, but I think, you know, for, let's say for a restaurant or a chef or for, um, you know, a fashion designer or an architect to see their work uh, immortalised in a print publication is still really special. It's still something that people aspire to. And, yeah, there's nothing like a well-designed magazine. And, of course, you know, like you mentioned, the sub-editor, I mean, the skills, editing skills, design skills, all those, uh, you know, that portfolio of expertise that goes into a, a high-quality publication. I mean, they're all they're all crafts that should be honoured. And it's, yeah, it's just great that there's you've got this um, forum in which you can do that. We also invest a lot in food photography. So we, um, we have some regular columns in each issue. One of the columns that I thought we should always do is a bit of a road test of an ingredient or a flavor or some sort of food item that is quintessentially owled or that is associated with Australia. So for example, um, in the first issue, we decided to do chocolate bars. So we've got everything from peppermint crisp to violet crumble to cherry ripes to good old freddos, cream eggs, all the sort of stuff. And we compare it to like the gourmet versions of them. And instead of just getting flat lays or supply PR picks, we shot all of the chocolate bars in all their glory and it's a three-bait spread the next issue we did salts so we did australian salts infused salts um indigenous ingredient salts this current issue that we've got now we did mite so we did every mite we did aussie mite obviously umite is like the go-to we did tumami all sorts of beautiful products which we shoot all of them we don't just take images like we actually think it's really important to cut up a beautiful tomato put some salt on it and see what happens and and i think visually it's got to grab you and if you invest in things that are important i think a food shoot for us is just as important as a fashion shoot just as important because it's it's the flavor of who we are and we theme all of our food content um according to the issue that we have. So my first issue back in March was themed um, strength. And so I thought, you know, let's have a look at the strength of flavor. What are the most flavorsome things that we've got? Or, you know, this current one that I've got, this one is themed impact. And so that's how we came up with the various mites. Like what is the flavor? What is the product that we have made the most impact with, you know, in a fun way? Like I know New York Times does actually appreciate my crazy sense of humor. And I thought, let's not be too serious about it. Like it's, Umite is great. Like it's, it's, I think it deserves to be on everyone's breakfast table. But the point of it is, like, I, I do place as much emphasis on food and on drinks as well. Um, and restaurant reviews. And, and, um, and in fact, I have to say, in this current issue, my most amount of photography has been done on food because we actually did an amazing photo essay with Rock Palmer 
um, poor guy to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go to the fish market. But actually, now that I think about it, I have spent the most amount of budget on photography on food in this particular issue. So there you go. I mean, what job do you think, uh, Katarina, that that print publishing can do in food media? What is you know what is a important point of difference for print when it comes to talking about food and having those conversations that we want to have around food? Oh, I guess it's exactly what you said about it having certain weight. And I think it also adds a degree of honesty because rightly or wrongly, some people can still be a bit terrified of print because it is so lasting. And so I think it needs to, um, I think it makes people do better, try better, write better, photograph better. I don't know. I do think there's a certain reverence to it still, um, a certain authority to it. Um, I definitely find people take a lot more time to write their stories for print than they do for our website. But um, maybe that's because I give them more generous deadlines. I'm not sure. But um, I certainly feel I have a lot more luxurious um, space with layouts. Um, like I said, I'm able to invest a lot more in photography. But in terms of the role, in terms of what we do, I always said it's got to be a, a journal of record of where we are as a nation at the moment. And one of my first things was we have to bring back the long, honest restaurant review, whether it's positive, brutal, critical, helpful, not helpful, whatever, it has to come back. And so we did actually try um, to do two reviews, restaurant reviews very early on before um, we couldn't travel anymore. But I definitely want to make that a complete trademark for us to make sure that, you know, I've got lawyers, I've got everyone ready, I'm going to make sure that it's all above board. But I do think restaurant reviews are something that I I miss um, and at that length, you know what I mean, like the full pager with the beautiful images. And for us to look back a year from now and to go, oh, oh yeah, I remember that. I mean, it's just been realized, like with everything that Andrew McConnell has been doing or society, it's just, oh, my God, I don't know how – I don't know how you guys just maintain the the enthusiasm and the will to just keep pushing onwards. I can't even imagine how difficult it must be. So in terms of what we do, if actually we can help support and record what's happening, that's how I see our role as being. And also what I love doing is finding those slightly untapped talents and the newer stories and not the usual cliches and not the usual celebrity chefs and all that kind of stuff. I think as T Australia, our role would be to definitely champion as much um, Australian talent as possible. Mm. I mean, it's interesting you talk about the restaurant reviews having that length and the, and the gravity mm-hmm. and, you know, oh, my goodness, length in a restaurant review is such a luxury these days. Um, but And also talking about, you know, that they're, they're negative if they need to be. What do you think the place is for a negative restaurant review when, you know, as you well know, the industry is, is so precarious and has suffered so much? Like, do you think it's okay in such a climate to, to speak ill of a restaurant? Absolutely not at the moment, no. I think there is absolutely no place for it at all. I think if anyone is doing anything without kindness at this stage, um, I think there's a problem. Um, so, no, we would. We actually had a few discussions with my restaurant review about which we were going to discuss and how it was going to turn out, and that got scrapped very, very quickly because I think this is definitely not the time to kick people when they're down. I, Like I said, I, I see this with Pasquale personally, like before you and I spoke, I was working with him on 
Father's Day dinner packs. And you know what I mean? Like everyone is working hard right now. My personal opinion is that read the room. Now is not the time for negative reviews. I would probably start rethinking that maybe maybe March, April, May next year, maybe, but also that restaurant might have already changed or been better or improved or they would have, you know what I mean? We do have a certain um, selection process and a certain number of visitations and we never go to the restaurant in the first month or two of opening. Like we do actually treat restaurants with respect. We will never rock up on the first day. It will actually, we will give them time. We have a whole policy and guidelines about being respectful and being understanding of what the restaurants need, if it's a new restaurant, to be able to find its feet a little bit. So we don't deliberately go out and um, try and do a match job on people. It's definitely, I feel, respectful and at least three visits. It's all anonymous. All anonymous. It's all um, paid for by me. It's, um, yeah, so we try and do things as ethically and above board as possible. Mm, and your restaurant reviewer, Besha Rodell, is, mm-hmm. I mean, she's a great writer. I really enjoy reading anything that she does. Uh, she's also quite unique these days in that she is still anonymous. She's She doesn't put her face out there. Uh, she, she's, um, yeah, she really is undercover, which is pretty hard in these days of social media. I know, but I love that, right? Like, even I get giddy when she's like, oh, I'm at the airport, go and grab a coffee. And I'm like, oh, my God, seriously? Like, I get super excited at the chance of being able to, like, see her face. <laughs> well, even I was uh, when at the, um, right, the food festival, or was it the Writers' Festival a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and she was on a panel and she, um, like, had a, wore a mask. Like, she really takes it seriously. Yeah, she does. And there's the few people that have actually seen her face. Um, yeah, it's like a little club, a little secret club of like, what does she look like? What kind of hair does she have? Like, I know, I love that. I absolutely love that about her. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. Um, I I feel like for me, like at the start of my career as a restaurant critic, I definitely – uh, I didn't have my photo in my column. I made a real point of that. And it was only actually after we, my column came back after all the lockdowns last year that um, I finally relented and agreed to my editor's ongoing request to have my photo next to, you know, in my column. And, of course, you know, in the meantime, I do so many other things. My face was out there. It's not hard to find out what I look like. Um to me, I sort of feel like the age of anonymity is dead, but I really respect Besha for um, being a holdout in that space. I think it's, um, yeah, you can't help. Sometimes you will get a different experience uh, if you're recognised. Often, often you know, they can't make the food more delicious, but they can certainly bring out extra courses and give you extra attention. Oh, completely. Absolutely. I see it, like I said, with the sky firsthand, of course. I mean, all the restaurants have got the pictures of the back door and, of course, they'll treat you better or they'll, you know, bust their chops to make sure the plate looks nicer or they'll give you the best guy. Of course it will. It's not It's not accurate So, um, in some instances. So, yeah, no, I agree. I think the, um, us having Australia's only anonymous restaurant review, I think that's a bit of a coup. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, so I'd love to talk a bit more about media because, you know, truth is really under assault these days and mm-hmm. especially a publication like the New York Times, especially in the US, has never been more important as a journal of record and of integrity. But at the same time, there's such an assault on the whole idea of mainstream media that, you know, perhaps that's where the biggest lies are in some people's eyes. As someone who's, um, you know, got a, a long history in working in media organisations, Organizations, how fragile do you think it is at the moment, you know, this this notion of, of truth and objectivity? 
Well, my specialization is obviously in lifestyle and luxury journalism. And um, I think it's kind of been under attack for a while. Um, and I don't have a love-hate relationship with influencers. I'm not even going to go there. But I think some have done a major injustice to people's perception of a lot of lifestyle. And I get really annoyed when people um, think of lifestyle journalism as um, just being fluffy or unimportant or whatever. Like my background is business journalism and finance journalism. So I bring that into lifestyle. And so I love delving into success stories and people's journeys and challenges and the way that their business has formed and grown and all that kind of stuff. So I try and report on everything that we do with integrity and with layers and with depth and intelligence. Um, inter- I mean, there is such a – we all hang out for the press conferences at the moment to find out the numbers, but it's almost a damaging thing, right? Um it's it's so like we just want the number but then when the number isn't what we want because it's not going to be what we want for a long time then you just kind of you feel the slump of heaviness across the nation and then we all are suckers for punishment and we all scroll 24 7 what are we looking for what are we scrolling for what what is it that we want to feel like it's the you know the brain changing into an addictive state is not good it's not where i want it to be that's why i'm passionate about magazines and print and and part of what we do in that hopefully we can, well, as you say, New York Times will not let me get away with anything and I love that. They feel like they need to approve every page like three or four times, every single word, every single comma gets scrutinized and I love that. Um, So the New York Times brand brings with it certain credibility. Also the fact that we have those massive word lengths that we're able to do those three to 5,000 word stories, which you can't really find many other places here. but I believe in the in the print form, there's a bit more gravity and I think also escapism because you are kind of hopefully sitting down with, I don't know, a glass of wine or a cup of tea and it's a different part of your brain that's being engaged. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's been edited not by an yeah. algorithm but by, you know, I guess a sensibility or a set of values um, which might not map totally onto yours but I think one of the things that I love about turning physical pages of a publication is that you don't quite know what you're going to get and you can't help but have your perspective expanded. Of course, publications have various aesthetics or points of view. Uh, you can go different places for different things, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not algorithmic. It's not just leading you, it's not just scrolling and clicking from one thing to the next. There's some other curatorial value at work. I love that. That's a really lovely way of putting it, actually. I really love that. Yeah, well, I think it's really important. And I think, you know, the fact that the internet will just continue to sort of serve up more of what we um more of what we've just clicked on you know to really lead us further and further down rabbit holes it certainly contributes to the fracturing of society and i think a distrust of media sources of all, of, of any stripe and it's terrifying like, like i mean the complete tracking of your behavior it's terrifying i'm sorry it's terrifying i mean the other day i was asked by a parent to install um What's that thing called? Uh, Kids Messenger? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I I really don't think I'm going to start yet. Like, it's it's such a minor thing. But I'm like, no, I'm just not going to because it's too early, too soon, don't want to do it. 
Yeah, I reckon as the, as the parent of teenagers, I reckon hold out on that stuff as absolutely long as you can. I reckon any extra five minutes offline is great for those young brains. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Give them a pencil and a bit of paper and we'll do that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, it's yeah, so interesting to chat to you, Katarina. I feel like there's so many different directions that we could go in. Um, but and I really, really recognize what you're saying about like what are we actually looking for in the news? Because I think it's like, do we just keep looking to find something better, to find some better news? But you're not really gonna get that when you're doom scrolling, are you? Correct. Absolutely. That's all it is. And then as you say, the rabbit hole and then you click on this thing and then you don't know if you should trust this thing. That one hasn't been branded properly. That one hasn't been tagged properly. This is this. Like, I mean, do you really need to buy all that crap? Also, you don't need to buy all that crap. That is just shocking. Honestly, it's such a waste of time. And I've caught myself literally two hours later going, oh, I should go to bed. It's one o'clock. No, just just don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Love it. So what's the, um, what's the next issue of Tea Australia going to feature? Next issue is um, we're going to be themed Legacy. So we have got a couple of um, a couple of big features coming up. So we've got a um, we've got a big story about young people, kind of around the age of thirty and under, who are leaving behind an amazing legacy. So they're already like they're you know half my age, but they're like doing amazing things. So we are looking at people in the food and wine and healthcare and tech and inventors and musicians and um, activists and people who are concerned about the environment, all that sort of stuff. So we're doing amazing photo shoots with them. It's all, all the photo shoots are going to be done by Zoom for this particular feature, because I just think, again, as we just said, it's a record of um, where we are and doing a photo shoot around the country, in fact, even um, into New York, um, by Zoom is going to be so cool. Um, so we're doing that. And then we've got a cover star who is male and at the moment in the UK and he likes, um, I was going to say he likes speed, but that came out bad. Um, he likes, <laughs> you know what I mean. Going fast. <laughs> um, and in terms of our food, Besh is going to be working on two pieces for us. So she's going to be working on um, cordials, so our row test is going to be posh cordials with that sort of distinctive Australian flavour. So we're going to do a beautiful setup photo shoot with those. And she's also working on a piece, a legacy piece for me. So a legacy in the um, Australian food scene. So obviously we'll be talking to Carly Kwong, we'll be talking to a few other people. So um, just an overarching piece on um, our food legacy, where where we've come from and where we're going. So someone like Besho is going to do an amazing job on that. Wow, that all sounds great. So where can people find the magazine if they want to check it out? Uh, well, we're in about, I think, 3,000 news agents around the country. But um, in COVID, we also do single copy sales online. So you just go to tastralia.com.au and everything's on there for you. Katarina, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I will admit that I now need to get off this call and have some tiramisu as soon as I possibly can. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us at Dirty Linen. Thank you so much, Danny. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.